So this morning, uh, when we're not in a book study, uh, we, we use the lectionary calendar and the text from the lectionary calendar, and we mentioned this last week, but so I was looking through, Matt sent me a, a text, said, would, would I be willing to, to, to speak? And I said, yes. And then he said, you can choose from these texts. So one is on marriage. I'm thinking, you know, I've been married 40 years. I could probably say something about marriage. Try to listen to her. Marry someone who will lower their expectations enough that you'll be okay in the end. That was kind of all I could say, I think. The other one was on divorce out of, out of Mark. And I thought, Matt can deal with divorce. And the third choice was on the book of Job. And so we're going to look at the book of Job today. I'm supposed to be in Sunday school with the grade school kids, me and Jane. And as I thought about the text this morning, Jane should be up here with me talking about the book of Job. Or maybe Mark. Mark, as far as what it, what it takes to live with tragedy uh, your whole life. So we're going to jump right in. There have been two times in my life when I faced tragedy. The first one was not too long ago. We had uh, been here for 10 years working with the church, had a, you know, a, a very rewarding run, and went back to California and I was serving as a dean of students and one of the VPs at another one of our schools called Bethany. And after three years of just pouring our hearts into it and working as hard as we could, I, um, I actually quit. The reason I quit, because I think I would have been fired had I not quit. And uh, we had, you know, transitioned our whole family back to California. And just the thought of, you know, kind of regrouping and finding something else to do that we wanted to do was really difficult, and uh, there were all kinds of extenuating circumstances. Anyway, it worked out. We came back here, worked with Teen Challenge for a year, worked with Chi Alpha on the MSU campus, and then started teaching some as an adjunct at Evangel, and the job that I was doing at, uh, at MSU kind of quit. It stopped, and so I had to find something to do. So I went to uh, uh, Evangel and asked, are there any jobs open, and ended up running the boilers for the physical plant. So I'm, I was teaching classes as an adjunct and running the boilers. And I really hadn't processed the whole leaving California and losing that job. I mean, it was traumatic in some sense, but we really didn't want to work for him anymore, so it was mitigated by that. But one day I found myself, uh, we were remodeling a dorm, and uh, I found myself uh, in the cafeteria, and it just so happened the whole faculty or the whole faculty and administration of Bethany was in, ca in the cafeteria that day, and uh, including the new president. And these are people I had worked alongside of as one of the administrators. And it, it kind of began to hit me. Wow, I lost a lot of status, if nothing, nothing else. And I had this, I had the, uh, the, the Evangel uh, Carpentry Shop shirt on. And so... They all filed through, and they shook my hand and said, hey, how are things going? And I was talking to him. Then the president came, and he looked at me, and he goes, what are you doing? It was like, you know, you used to be an administrator. Now you're, now you're a lowly worker here, which I don't believe that about the, about the uh, physical staff, physical plant staff. Then a few minutes later, I had to get a forklift and get a dumpster and take it over to this a big trash compactor that we had, and I poured the stuff into the trash compactor, and something didn't work right. It wasn't going, wasn't operating. And so I had to get up there and move some stuff around, and I fell into the trash compactor. <laughs> and it didn't get hurt, except my pride. 
And then I really knew how far I'd fallen, you know, from where I, you know, where I, a job that I really enjoyed to a job that I lost. And it was uh, just a, a reminder that sometimes life does not go the way you think it should go. The second trauma is much sadder. And most of you know my story, but 35 years ago, um, this fall, we celebrate, we didn't celebrate, we acknowledged the anniversary of the loss of our three-year-old daughter in a drowning accident. That 35 years ago is a long time. It's a lot of life that's gone under our bridge, and so it's not an open wound. But just let me recount what happened. It was a day just like today, nothing different. We woke up, got our little one dressed, and headed out for the day's activity. Pam went off to work at a restaurant. My family owns restaurants out there. Went out to, off to work. And it was early afternoon. My mom and dad and I and uh, Pam's younger brother, Richie, were in the backyard of the parsonage, 50 yards from the back of the Assembly of God Church that my dad pastored. And uh, we were just doing outside stuff. Came inside, and I said, where's Kristen? And mom and dad looked around. We didn't know and immediately went into alarm and walked out the back door into the backyard and started frantically searching for her. And uh, I found her in a small aquarium, above ground aquarium that my dad had built out of bricks. And she was in there and for a three-year-old, it became a death trap. She could not have turned herself around. And so I pulled her out and laid her on the ground and began to try to resuscitate her and they called the, the emergency personnel from down the street, which were all my friends. These are guys that worked on the, on the volunteer fire, fire department. And we did our best to no avail to revive her, to resuscitate her. And the emergency vehicles came and the, and the uh, ambulance took her away. And then I had to stop and wait because Pam was coming home from work and I had to stop and get her out of the car and tell her that the emergency situation she was driving up on was the death of her daughter. Probably the hardest moment in my life. I don't know how she survived. Her little girl was the apple of her eye, as you can imagine, with all the young kids here. Several things that were difficult, stopping her and telling her that, going to the morgue, and seeing a little tiny body and then seeing a little tiny casket at the graveside. You've probably heard me say this before, some of you, but when you pick out a casket, it's big. When it's for a child, it's really small. For some reason, that just triggered for me just the horror of the situation. And then obviously cleaning out her room. And you don't do that immediately. We had to wait. And uh, very difficult trauma. Again, I don't know how Pam survived. I survived by just working through it. And I think that we both survived by just coming to the conclusion that we don't have a choice. What else are you going to do? Well, this morning we come to the book of Job. It's the epic Hebrew poem. And it's an ancient wisdom poem that addresses the question... How do we respond to God when we suffer great loss, when our lives are devastated, and when our hope is crushed? Now let me make a clear distinction this morning. Job is not about an individual who dropped his iPhone and cracked the screen. 
It's not about the time Job prayed for a good parking spot and ended up having to park out and never land. It's not about a flat tire, a speeding ticket, or about a bad hair day or being, being stuck in traffic. Uh, frustrating as these things are, uh, there's a, a verse in Song of Solomon that says, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard. There's all kinds of little stuff that happens to us all the time that's frustrating. That's not what Job's about. Job's about trauma. It's reserved for traumatic and devastating life events. We turn to Job when, not if, we face the inevitable losses and tragedies that we're going to face in life. Life-threatening sicknesses, death of a loved one or a spouse, loss of employment, natural disasters, economic disasters, infidelity, divorce, addiction, abuse, tragic accidents, violence, and the like. The story of Job asks the questions, who or what should we blame for the traumatic events in our lives? And how should we respond to God uh, who is supposed to be perfect and who's supposed to protect and care for us? So let's jump into the text. Is that clock right up there? Looks like 20 minutes to me, so we'll go from there. Job 1.1, the, uh, the lectionary starts at Job 1.1 and, ju- and jumps to Job 2.1 through 10. So that's what we'll follow this morning. Uh, there are several questions that help us to determine our response to trauma, and we're going to kind of chronicle those this morning. So here's the text, Job 1.1. Once there was a man from Uz by the name of Job. He was a very good man. His character was spotless, his integrity unquestioned. In fact, he so believed in God that he sought to honor him in all things. He deliberately avoided evil in all of his affairs. And I think the first question we have to answer in our minds if we're going to respond uh, appropriately to trauma is this question, do bad things in fact happen to good people? Do bad things in fact happen to good people? People. This precisely becomes the cosmic mystery that the entire book focuses on. Was it Job's own sin to blame for his suffering or some other source? Uh, the purpose of the prologue is to present the hero and protagonist. Job was a foreigner, an Arab, and one of the sons of the East. And the character of Job is indicated by three specific expressions. One, he was a very good man. Two, his character was spotless. And three, his, his integrity unquestioned. Uh, some translations use the term perfect here. And it's not perfect as if he was, uh, had no flaws, but that he was a finished product, a complete person. Job is also pictured as one who was both spiritual and ethical. It says he sought to honor God in all things, and he deliberately avoided evil in all of his affairs. So Job was a righteous or a spiritual man, a holy man. And he was one who walked out his spirituality in his everyday affairs. And I like to, to, uh, to frame this in my mind that holiness is wholeness. Holiness is wholeness. Holiness is not a spiritual concept. It's a, a, an entirety of life concept. So if, you're, if we're whole physically, mentally, social, emotionally, spiritually, that equates itself to holiness. And sometimes I think we mix it up. We think holiness only has to do with Sunday things, 
But holiness is a comprehensive concept, and this is how Job is pictured. Um, he was a, a, a godly, spiritual man who integrated that into all of his life. So the answer to our first question, as we get into the story about whether bad things happen to good people, is unequivocally, yes, they do. The lectionary skips the, the details of what actually happened in the first chapter of Job. But as we look back, um, it shows how his life is turned upside down when armies come to kill all of his livestock. And it says, it chronicles, it says, he lost 1,000 oxen and donkeys, 7,000 sheep, and 3,000 other animals. And then a wind comes and kills all of his children. I'm not sure why it skipped over that. It seems like pretty important stuff. But his life was totally devastated. And, uh, and yet, it, uh, it talks about his response. And I have, I have uh, 24 chickens and three ducks. And uh, I'd be really upset if winds or armies came and took my livestock from me. The Old Testament, if you're faithful to God, you got land, wives, and livestock. And so this was an indication that, that uh, you know, his life was, was really devastated, even as a, a faithful person. And it tells us what Job's response was. It reflects the fact that he was a righteous man. It says, Then Job stood up, and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. Face down, Job sprawled in the dirt to worship. I was naked with nothing when I came into, from my mother's womb. And naked with nothing, I will return to the earth. The Eternal has given, and he has taken away. May the name of the Eternal One be blessed. And in all of this, it says, Job neither sinned, nor did he make foolish charges against God. So once again, the answer to, does, does, uh, do bad things happen to good people? The answer is yes. Rabbi uh, Harold Kushner wrote a book with that same title, and he says this. Laws of nature do not make exceptions for nice people. A bullet has no conscience. Neither does a malignant tumor or an automobile gone out of control. That is why good people get sick and get hurt as much as anyone else. Yes, bad things happen to good people. This is a difficult message to preach. It's also a difficult message for young people, I think, to receive. Because we don't think it's going to happen. And I think the, the caution here is it probably is going to happen at some point to someone you love. And so we need to hear the word of the Lord as it's presented in Job. Lectionary jumps to chapter 2, and it begins like this. Now one day it was time for the sons of God, God's heavenly messengers, to present themselves to the Eternal One to give reports and to receive instructions. The accuser, literally the Satan, was with them there uh, again, uh, also ready to present himself to God. The Eternal One says to the accuser, Where have you been? The accuser says, Oh, roaming here and there, running about the earth and observing its inhabitants. The Eternal One says, Well, have you looked into the man Job, my servant? He is unlike any other person on the whole earth, a very good man, his character spotless, his integrity in questioned. In fact, he so believes in me that he seeks in all his things to honor me and, to, and deliberately avoids evil in all of his affairs. And I found him to be unswervingly committed, despite the fact 
that you provoked me to wreck him in the first chapter for no particular reason, to take away my protection and his prosperity. The accuser, verse 4. Well, as they say, skin for skin, it's easy to make is easy to be so pious in the face of such health. Surely a man will give what he has for the sake of his own life. So now extend your hand, afflict him, both bone and body, and he will curse you right to your face. Okay, so we have this scenario that's played out both in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the second question I think we have to settle when we're trying to respond appropriately to trauma is this, exactly what is going on behind the cosmic curtain that we don't see in the, on this plane, this level, what's going on? And Job provides a rare glimpse beyond the cosmic curtain into the throne of God. We're given this brief backstage pass on what goes on in heavenly realms. And it reminds me, you guys old enough to know the original Wizard of Oz? When they finally make their way to Oz, and Dorothy asks to see the wizard, and the doorman responds um, with these words, nobody gets in to see the wizard, not nobody. And I think when we think of heaven, we kind of have a nebulous idea of what might happen there someday, somewhere. And even when we read passages that talk about the throne room of God, it's not easy for us to figure out exactly what's going on. I'm not sure this passage uh, actually uh, helps us because there's so many things that are, that are difficult to understand in this. Uh, there is much to be considered from these verses. There are other glimpses throughout Scripture about God's throne room that we're familiar with. 1 Kings 22 says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And Isaiah 61 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And that's kind of the extent of what we, you know, what we know. That there's somewhere there is a throne room, and God is sitting on the throne. But the specifics are somewhat difficult to understand. Even the identity of the accuser, most of us have been raised, if you've been raised around evangelical circles, uh, believe this is Satan that came into the, into the heavenly courtroom, and uh, God then questions him. Uh, the actual Hebrew is a little less clear, it's not the title Satan, but it is the accuser, which is, a, which is related to that. Um, so several clarifications uh, we need to make here. One, the individual is a minor character in the book. The rest of the book he's almost not mentioned. Two, he operates under God's authority. So this accuser has to request that God will give him the authority to work and to do what he's going to do. And uh, three, we are to understand that there are real evil forces in the world that God is combating at all times. That's probably the, the biggest understanding I take from this, that there are evil forces in the world that we live in. Do you guys believe that? I believe it, but I don't know if I really believe it at times. We kind of go through our lives, you know, trying to do the best we can to serve Jesus. And the whole evil, you know, the, the demons behind the bushes... Uh, sometimes you just don't know what to do with that thought. We actually had an experience at my home this week where uh, my son was awakened and he, was, he came and talked to me about this in the middle of the night, which ruined my sleep for the rest of the night, and, and said that there was, and I can't tell you all the details, but said that there was an evil being that 
that he encountered, and he saw it took off, it, it left the room, and there was like a sucking, you know, maybe, I don't know what he ate, uh, but then he watched it go through the fields, and he actually couldn't see the being, he could just see the, the bushes, uh, you know, move aside, and then all of a sudden it was at the back door, and he said something and woke up. From my background, at that point, we plead the blood of Jesus. I don't know if you guys know what that means. But, uh, you know, you, you say, Jesus, you know, get rid of these evil spirits in this place. And he was scared to death. In fact, he had an apartment in town here. So he came back in town after that, left me alone with the chickens out at the farm. And I had this sense, and I was talking to him and actually was praying with him. And I said, you know, I don't sense that there's an evil spirit in this place. It wasn't, I didn't have that you know, that discernment whatsoever. But I do know that there are evil spirits in places. There, there's an evil combatant to our souls, guys. And I think we have to recognize that in this glimpse that we have into heaven uh, as Job is being tested. Um, I have this conviction at 61 years old, 61 and now three months or so. It's the abiding theological understanding that I operate. It's pretty simple. Okay, it's simplistic. And here it is. I have to ask, am I being tempted by God for my benefit to grow spiritually? Excuse me. Am I being tested by God so that I'll grow spiritually? Kind of like a coach, you know, puts a team through all kinds of drills and wears them out so that when the day of the game comes, they're ready. God does that. Do you guys know that? He tests us. He perfects us. So that's one thing I ask, is that happening? And then the other is, is Satan or my own desires, are they tempting me with evil, my evil inclinations like the, the passage we read out of James, is that happening at the same time to destroy my character? And the, the simplistic understanding that I've come to is the answer is yes. At any given time, God is testing you and Satan is tempting you. The same maybe set of circumstances are happening. Both are going on. One is to make you strong. The other is to defeat you. And so as I go through life, this is kind of how I understand that, yes, both are at work simultaneously in any situation. Back to the text, Job 2, 6 through 9. The Eternal One says, well then, this is how it will be. He is now in your hands. So God is actually handing Job's physical being over to the, the accuser. One thing, though, you will not take his life. Job must not be killed. And with that, the, accu the accuser left the court and the eternal's presence. And he afflicted Job with a painful skin disease from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. His body was covered with boils. Job took a broken piece of pottery to scrape his wounds. And while he sat in the ashes, just out, or while he sat in the ashes just outside of town, and his wife found him. I'm not sure which was worse, the boils or the wife finding him. No, that's not true. My wife left me this week. She's, she's in California for a week. She'll come back. So I think the third question we have to settle when we're trying to reflect or respond to trauma in our lives is this. Can we find comfort or at least consolation that God is in control even when our lives are being torn apart? Job did not have the benefit of the text that we have before us. He didn't know what had happened in the heavenlies and that there was a bargain being made to see if he was a faithful man. Even though 
We have glimpsed behind this cosmic curtain. It does not settle the issue of how we respond to trauma in our lives. It doesn't settle it. One author says this, Even if you choose faith in the midst of trauma, to believe God is still in control in the midst of your suffering, it will not do, two, do three things. It will not eliminate the pain. You're going to go through painful seasons. For us, I think that it wasn't until a year and a half after Kristen's death that we began to actually kind of feel normal. Up to that point, your, your mind triggers the event again, and you're back in the midst of it. But at that point, because of God's grace, I think we were uh, a lot better. But it was a long time. It won't eliminate the pain. It won't stop the questions. Even if you say, God, I know you're faithful, it doesn't stop the questions. Why did this happen? And it will not create a logical reason for your suffering. Suffering. There is no adequate answer to the question, why did a three-year-old drown? Time alone and God's healing can move us beyond the why to the acceptance. And, uh, and I think it, it gives us caution when we begin to, to talk to our friends who are in the midst of, of problems or traumas in their life because we don't know exactly what they're going through or why they're going through it. The last passage uh, to conclude this morning, Job's 2, 9 and 10. It's Job's wife, and she says to Job, Will you still not swerve in your commitments? Why don't you curse God and die? Wow. And Job responds, You're speaking nonsense like some depraved woman. I've tried that phrase, and let me tell you, it doesn't work. The next phrase is an important one, guys. It says this. Job responds to his wife and says, Are we to accept the good that comes from God, but not accept the bad? And it, it takes a lot of life experience and considerable maturity to come to that statement that comes out of Job's mouth. Are we going to accept just the good in this world that comes under the providence of God's care and not accept the fact that there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be harmful and hurtful that we're going to have to go through. The commentary says this, Throughout all of his life, Job did not sin with his mouth. He would not curse God as the accuser had predicted. And he was faithful. So lastly, the fourth and final question I think we have to settle when we decide or trying to decide how to respond to trauma in our lives is will we allow our suffering to produce a season of growth and maturity or will we allow it to kill our spirits? I heard a young chapel speaker this week in, at Evangel say this. Sometimes it's not till you lose everything that you begin to find healing and restoration. I don't like that concept at all. But I think sometimes when we're stripped to the bare of our existence, we begin to actually consider what our lives are all about. I know the trauma of losing a sweet little innocent girl so many years ago was a catalyst for growth and maturity in my life. Let me be honest, though, it could have gone the other way. It would have been easier to lay down and to die or to give up. We were pastoring a little church, had no idea what we were doing, trying to you know, stumble through it, and uh, had to tell them it was okay to even talk about our daughter that had just drowned. It was like she was the only thing we were thinking about, but no one would mention the fact that we just lost a daughter and they were trying to be so careful. 
Instead, we clung to one another and to the simple belief that God was still God and he was good. And let me just give you uh, some wisdom as an old guy to a young congregation. If your friends are going through trauma, you know what saved us? People brought us meals. And they brought us more meals. And they didn't say a whole lot. And then we started getting cards. And then we got cards from our friends who talked to their friends and their friends who talked to their friends. I just went through all my mom's cards after she died last year. And there were literally hundreds and hundreds of cards she had about our little girl's death. Now, one of the lasagnas we had had a Band-Aid in it. I remember that from that. I've always looked closely uh, eating lasagna from that point on. But it, re- it was really the love and concern from our friends in the body of Christ that sustained us through hours and hours of agony when every moment you'd again wake up and think of the loss. And we decided and accepted that we would accept both the good that came from him and also the bad that he allowed into our lives. Rabbi Kushner, one more quote from him, he says this, Pain is the price we pay for being alive. Dead cells, our hair, our fingernails, can't feel pain. They cannot feel anything. When we understand that, our, when we understand that, our question will change from why do we have to feel pain to what do we do with our pain so that it becomes meaningful and not just pointless, empty suffering. I love the, the poem by... Kipling called If. Let me finish with this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, make allowances and make allowances for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired of waiting or be lied about and don't deal in lies or be hated and don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise, if you can dream and not make dreams your master if you can think and not make your thought and not make thoughts your aim if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken tris- twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you've ga- you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools you can make one heap of if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on One turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they're gone and hold on when there's nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if men count with you, if, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son, or a daughter. Bow with me as we pray. Lord, we're grateful for the book of Job. Though it doesn't make our lives easy. You didn't promise us easy lives. You promised us lives of growth, lives that respond to your care and to your sovereignty over our world, even when 
it seems like our worlds are falling apart. I pray for every young family member, every young person, every middle-aged person, every old person in this room, that you would give us the conviction once again that you're a good God and you're just. And give us the ability to say with Job that we will accept the good that comes into our lives from you and we will accept that which causes us pain and trauma. Help us, Lord, to be attentive to people around us. We don't know their stories. You know them, and you call us to walk alongside one another, sometimes in silence, sometimes bringing a lasagna. And we thank you for that opportunity. Help us to be attentive. In your name we pray, amen.